0: Welcome to the Congress of Neurological Surgeon Podcast. My name is Dr. Martina Stipula, and I will be moderating the podcast today. Today we will discuss this paper, Spinal Precision for Pediatric Spinalistesis, National Trends, Complication, and Short-term Outcomes. Our faculty for today is Dr. Ian Doward. Um, He's the lead author and senior author of this paper, and he's from the Washington University Department of Neurosurgery. We also have Dr. Amar Damdani from Shriner Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Rimmel Dosani is a CNS fellow and resident at LSU Health Science Center. And Dr. Richard Mencher is a chief resident from LSU Health Science Center in Shreveport. Uh, With this introduction, with no further ado, I would like to invite Dr. Doward to start with this introduction and summary of the paper
1: okay, sure, so uh you know obviously in recent years there have been a number of um, large databases that have become available for uh for study of of various disease processes that are uh, somewhat rare and uh you know the these, these sorts of databases facilitate uh, evaluating larger numbers of patients than will be possible through uh, single-center or, in some cases, even multi-center trials. And so, uh, you know, obviously these, these databases have their limitations, but uh, in any case, I think it does give a window into uh, particularly trends over time. And so that, that's what we're trying to uh, evaluate here um, with, with this study. So, you know, we utilize the KIDS uh, inpatient database, or the KID as it's uh, abbreviated, Uh, And this is this is not an every year database. This is a a, a database that's uh, essentially every three years. And so, uh, you know, we we just uh, sampled it from 2003 to 2012, and uh, you know, basically utilized uh, pertinent ICD-9 codes to identify patients with uh, spondylolisthesis or uh, who also might have been coded with with spondylolysis who underwent surgery. And uh, you know we we identified uh, upwards of 2,600 patients and uh, tracked those patients for the uh, types of surgery that they underwent, uh, and uh, you know other adjunctive treatments that might have been provided, such as uh, recombinant human bone morphogenetic protein, and then we uh, evaluated costs and both a, a univariable and multivariable analysis of various factors that contributed to uh, outcomes, including their their complications. You know, basically the, the main uh, findings. I think that much of what we found uh, reflected some of the basic trends that were going on th- throughout the world of spinal surgery over that time period, including uh, increasing costs associated with, with fusion procedures, uh, increasing, and then uh, in the last year, decreasing use of bone morphogenetic protein, and you know, various uh, findings associated with uh, surgery for spinal that are somewhat. Uh, common, sens- common sensical, such as uh, you know doing anterior and posterior surgeries tended to carry greater risk of complications and uh you know other findings that have uh, seemingly been replicated in a number of other uh, similar studies uh in- including increased risk of complications among patients with uh, medicaid insurance status patients treated at teaching hospitals et cetera so uh, you know that' that 's kind of the, the overall gist of the of the paper here um like like any of these uh, papers relating to um, you know these larger Database samples. The problem is, is granularity much of the time, and so uh, it's difficult to know if, uh, you know, for instance, with a, a, a project such as this, it's difficult to know how much the severity of the disease process might have impacted the elements of treatment or the complications. Because you know, basically, we just know whether a patient had a diagnosis and whether they were treated. And so, you know, we don't know whether they had a, a grade five or a grade one spondylolisthesis. So, you know, that, that sort of limitation is always present with this sort of study. But in any case, I think we were able to draw some some interesting conclusions as to the trends over time.
2: Great. Uh, and Dr. Darward, I really, uh, this is Amber Sundani. I uh, really enjoyed uh, reading your paper. I particularly was impressed with the uh, number of patients uh, that you were able to gather through this uh, multicenter uh, data set. And again, I think it's important uh, for those of us that, that treat these kids to really understand what the trends are, what other people are doing. Is it similar to what we're doing or what we've seen in our practice? And, of course, being able to understand um, how these trends are affecting outcomes of particular complications. So really want to congratulate you and the rest of your team for a really uh, important paper that I think will impact all of us who uh, treat these uh, children. Uh, To that end, and I think you already touched on this a little bit, I did want to probe a little bit further to help clarify some of the questions that arise uh, when, uh, when we're treating these kids. Uh, firstly, and we touched on this already, you know the severity of, of the disease can have a huge impact uh, on um, what the outcome of that child would be, both uh, with respect to uh, intraoperative variables and postoperative outcome. I guess that's the first question is, was there a way to tease out uh, maybe not even specific grades, but high-grade versus low-grade spondylolisthesis, and if there was, um, would you be able to do a sub-analysis on these patients, and if there wasn't, you know, what would your general opinion would be as to how the treatment of uh, high-grade spondylolisthesis has evolved uh, over time in in your practice?
1: Yeah, to the best of my knowledge or uh you know any of us involved with this study that there wasn't really a way to tease out that uh severity. Uh, I mean as, as far as overall uh severity of, of health issues of course there there are comorbidity scales that, that can be utilized uh, and and we did utilize for this study but we did not have a myriad in grading uh reflected in any of these ICD9 codes so there's just a, an absence of granularity in that regard uh, which which obviously is a, is probably the principal limitation of the study uh, vis-a-vis evaluating complications you know i think you know that that being said you know h- how would this impact the the evolution of uh, surgery for for one of those seasons over the time frame is that, is that kind of the question uh,
2: yeah yeah exactly you know as we've uh, as our instrumentation and some of our neuromonitoring modalities particularly just direct nerves stim- nerve root stimulation has that has improved I think we've become uh, more aggressive with what our surgical goals are in high-grade spondylolisthesis. I'd say back in the early 2000s, we were probably more apt to take less correction or try not to reduce, whereas today I'd say that uh, in the right circumstances for the patient that uh, may have a significant lumbosacral kyphosis or global imbalance, we would uh, likely weigh the risks and benefits and be in favor of uh, doing at least some degree of, of reduction.
1: Sure. Um, sure.
2: Yeah. So again, just uh, this, just those uh, types of comments. When I when I think about how my practice has evolved over the years, uh, that has certainly been been a change and a trend that I've seen. And it appears uh, from your data that it's probably going to be be consistent with uh, with what we've observed. Just to yeah, know, and I think question. You not? Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead Dr. Carol.
1: Oh, yeah, no, I was just going to say that I, I think that, uh, you know, particularly with the increasing uh, understanding of the importance of spinal pelvic parameters, you know, there's a lot that we don't know about the, the long-term implications of, you know, having a high pelvic incidence and the setting of spondylolisthesis and, and so forth. But uh, I, I would imagine that, um, you know, even after this time frame, I think, but you know, right around the, the 2012, that, that final time point, I think people were uh, really becoming increasingly aware of uh, the importance of assessing spinal pelvic parameters and in patients who have a higher pelvic incidence. I think that uh, surgeons would probably have been more aggressive in terms of restoring lordosis at, at the, the given segment, and uh, you know, probably attempting more reduction or you know, or if they were unable to restore lordosis and perhaps they, they wouldn't be as aggressive. I mean, there are a lot of factors that have, have come into play, and I'm not sure we really totally understand how this all factors in, but, uh, you know, whereas with adult patients over the last several years, we're increasingly finding that, uh, you know, the the bane of the Surgeon who's correcting spinal pelvic parameters is, is proximal junctional kyphosis I mean with uh, the younger patients who have a you know just a spinal spinalsis at the uh, pr, you know, predominantly lumbar cycle junction that 's not really as much of an issue so uh you know there there's also an understanding that some of those adjacent level problems in the lumbar spine uh, may be less likely to occur in the setting of restored um, you know lumbar uh, alignment and uh, restored spinal pelvic parameters so I, I would imagine that people are actually becoming more aggressive with uh, you know perhaps anterior and posterior approaches or you know, with with an ALIF, which is going to be better at restoring lordosis than, than a TLIF. Although certainly, people are becoming more aggressive with either ALL resections from from a, a TLIF, which is of course uh, you know, very uh, challenging, or, or uh, you know, perhaps uh, coupling a TLIF with a, uh, a posterior column osteotomy, uh, resecting the facets bilaterally. So, you know, in yeah, you know, case, I'm sure that be... that has evolved over recent years.
2: Yeah, and no, I I would agree with you 100%. I mean, certainly, you know, in the pediatric space. We were not paying as much attention to pelvic parameters, and I can tell you now, you know, any child that comes in, even with a spondylolysis, because a higher pelvic incidence will predict the likelihood of that child uh, even slipping further as they're growing. Uh, right. We're measuring on every visit and, and on every child. So I think I think you're you're dead on. Uh, you know, why don't I hand it over to Dr. Meng'er and uh, get some additional questions for you, Dr. Beler?
1: Sure. Yeah. So.
2: Uh... This is uh Richard Menger from from LSU Shreveport. So uh again a, a wonderful paper and uh, re- really enjoyed uh you know pediatric deformity topic in um in the, the neurosurgery journal and um you know as residents we get a lot of exposure to degenerative spine cases and anterior approaches for you know lumbar pathology um, you know, one of the, the complications that oftentimes we you know, think about or consider or talk to patients about in anterior approaches would be um, any sort of plexus damage and, and uh, retrograde ejaculation. Now, I was just curious in your in your pediatric practice, is this something you've seen? Is it something that you consider, or you know, how do you approach kind of talking to patients about that um, in, in the kind of operative planning and decision matrix?
1: yeah sure so as a caveat the way that my practice personally has evolved is i i'm not really doing that many or or you know, very seldom pediatric cases um uh, so just just <laughs> so, so you're aware this doesn't often come up for me uh, although we did evaluate this this uh, database for for that particular question but um you know i i think that it is uh so my, in my opinion, it would be really vital to basically just avoid, if, it, if it's at all possible, avoid doing an anterior per, approach, particularly with BMP and, and a young male patient. Um, you know, I think if there's any possibility of achieving the goals of surgery, you know, decompressing and restoring alignment with a posterior approach instead, I think that that should be done. And the, the reason for that is that, Um, I think in in some way that comes down to just the really dramatic psychological implications of of retrograde ejaculation in a a young male patient Um, and and even uh, potentially elements of informed consent that that come into play because you've got, in some cases, a patient who's who's not uh, experienced enough or developed enough to even understand what that might mean. Uh, You've got a patient who can't give consent by themselves or their parents are in the room, which makes the conversation difficult to really Delve into fully, the parents may not really be in a position to to provide consent because they don't want to think about their child in that way, and and it's just a, a really thorny, possibly ethically fraught issue. So, you know, I, I would really personally hesitate to uh, carry out any sort of procedure that would that would potentially carry a, a risk uh, of, of retrograde ejaculation. I think it should just be. Um, you know, especially in malpatients, uh, uh, sort of a very last resort as far as reconstruction for spondylolisthesis. Dr. Sandani might have yeah. a different opinion on this. but uh,
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree uh, with you 100%. Uh, I think especially when there uh, may be viable alternatives, such as coming from the back and you know, T-LIF and uh, sacral dome osteotomies and other mechanisms by uh, which you can get uh, similar results, I would agree with you 100%. I think I think you're dead on. I mean, there's consent and then there's ascent and uh, you know, can a 13-year-old boy really consent to that procedure? And I think I think uh, the answer is uh, we're not sure. And if you're not sure, then uh, it's probably better to only use it in a in a last uh, last ditch uh, effort if at right. all needed. Right. Yeah. How, about, how about you, Dr. Dasani? You, do you have some questions as well?
3: Yes, this is uh, Rimal Dosani from uh, LSU uh, Shreveport. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to be on this uh, general club with all of you. I thought to uh, ask you about uh, the role of observation uh, in pediatric patients with uh, spondylolisthesis. Uh, I understand the paper discussed uh, the fusion procedure from various approaches, um, mm-hmm. but I wonder how uh, do you counsel patients who come into your clinic for the first time? How long would you observe them? What imaging modality do you use to follow them?
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean, I think uh, you know, ultimately the patient's symptoms are, are going to have to drive you know whether they're a candidate for surgery. Um, obviously, a lot of these patients, uh, I mean, we, we see a lot of patients with spondylolysis uh, and, and spondylolisthesis coming in uh, to the, the adult clinical setting, you know, in their in their twenties, thirties, even even forties or higher. So you know, these are patients who had a known spondylolisthesis as, as adolescents or teenagers, and they managed to do all right, uh, you know, without uh, surgical intervention until you know, perhaps later on when they began developing more advanced I mean, sorry, spondylosis at those uh, segments and uh, develop nerve compression symptoms that, that really uh, warranted treatment. So, um, you know, to the extent that pain is a symptom, unless it's really absolutely treatment refractory and debilitating and you've exhausted other uh, measures, including, you know, very aggressive, Physical therapy to, to work on core muscle strengthening and, and the entire posterior kinetic chain, uh, then and you know as well as the, the standard uh, methods of medication and injections and, and so forth, um, then you know you really uh, should, should try to avoid surgery unless it's just absolutely treatment refractory in that sense. Um, yeah, there's always, of course, implications of adjacent segment disease as well. If you're doing a fusion of any segment in a pediatric patient, at some point on on that timeline, which is very long, uh, they they are, you know, potentially going to run into difficulties with adjacent level disease and need more surgery in their lumbar spine. Uh, so, you know, I think if if you have a patient with a high grade slip that's progressing, though, that that's a different issue where, uh, you know, biomechanically they're they're failing and. The more that they progress in their greater their spondylolisthesis, the, the more uh, challenging and complicated the surgery becomes. You know, I think that that's a patient who, who really is, is beyond the point of watchful waiting. Uh, and, and certainly if you have a patient who's developing a neurological deficit from uh, stenosis, then that's also another patient who would need to have surgery sooner rather than later.
3: Thank you so much. I had a, one more question with respect to when you operate on pediatric patients from posterior-only uh, approach. Um, uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh popularity with the new minimally invasive tubular uh, retractors are you are you using the midline open approaches or are you using the tubular minimally invasive techniques more
1: yeah so yeah the, the most of the pediatric uh spinal surgery that I do now is actually um you know I'll, I'll do combined cases with one of my uh pediatric neurosurgery colleagues um and and actually we we have found uh, a pretty good use for uh, MIS approaches uh, you know, particularly if it's if it's not a high grade slip. Uh I, I think that the corrective ability of of most MIS techniques, at least in my hands, is, is somewhat limited. Uh but if you've got a patient with a you know grade one or two uh that's somewhat mobile, uh, you know, usually you can do a good job of getting that uh, reduced and, and obtaining a decompression uh just through a, a posterior tubular MIS uh T lift approach. And um you know, I think one of the possible limitations of a an MIS approach is that it can be somewhat more difficult to obtain a fusion just because of the limited uh, surface area for for bone grafting. Uh, but the, the young age of the patient and the propensity to heal their bone solidly helps to overcome that. So in some ways, I think that, that makes them uh, almost an optimal candidate for for an MIS approach. Um, you have to be cautious, I think, if it's a a lytic spondylolysis because uh, you know if you're if you're just doing a, a TLIF. Uh, you still have kind of this floating bone segment, and especially if you're trying to do a decompression as well. It's, it's a bit more technically challenging. You know, you, you can't do a, a gill laminectomy through a, an MIS approach, or, or at least not very readily. So, um, you know, that needs to be taken into consideration as well. But um, in some ways, I do think pediatric patients are, are ideal candidates for uh, MIS approaches.
2: Yeah, I'd just like to comment a little bit on that as well. I, I agree. I
1: think uh, the low-grade slip or
2: uh, the spondylolysis, where instead of a fusion you're doing a repair for, those are very amenable to uh, minimally invasive uh, procedures. And I really like the point that Dr. Darwood made is that if you see a child that's at high risk for progression or starting to slip, you probably want to jump in sooner before it turns into a much bigger operation. Because oftentimes when it's a low-grade slip, you can get away with a five-to-one fusion, uh, plus or minus uh, iliac bolts. But as that slip goes further and further, and those L5 uh, pedicles become uh, more dysplastic and slipped uh, anteriorly, uh, you know, at times you may have to take it up a little bit higher to L4, so you can, you know, save a level if you're able to jump in uh, early. And one of the things that I've really learned is that if there's a chronic bilateral spondylolysis, that patient's going to slip, and you probably want to watch that patient very carefully for the earliest signs of slipping, so you can just do a really focal uh, procedure on them. Dr. Darward, uh, another interesting uh, you know point that was brought up in your paper was the increased increasing use of uh, BMP in the time frame that you studied these patients. Mm. I was wondering you know, yeah, I was wondering if you can just comment on uh just b m p uh overall and its uh usage in, in pediatric patients or you know what your whole um what your thoughts on on that particular aspect of your study works
1: yeah sure, so this is uh, you know one area where I think that the um you know this paper uh identified a trend that was Uh, really a a trend occurring throughout the broader field of spine surgery where there was a tremendous degree of uh, exuberance about the use of BMP through kind of the late 2000s when, you know, people thought, well, I mean, if it's going to help fusion, then we should be using it all the time because we can, you know, just cut that... Non-union rate down precipitously, and um, yeah, I, I think that was somewhat true, but it was causing a substantial increase in the costs associated with surgery, and then there were obviously a variety of complications that need to be taken into consideration. So, um, yeah, I think we started to see in, in 2012, the last year that was uh, surveyed for this uh, study, we started to see a, a reduction again in the use of BNP, uh, still not to the you know, baseline levels at, at 2003, but. Uh, but it was coming down. And I think if, if this were carried forward, I think in 2015 you'd see a lot less. And uh, you know, certainly uh, when I'm at uh, academic conferences now, and, and, and someone mentions using BMP in, in a pediatric patient, you can kind of hear the hissing in the audience. I and mean, there's a lot of negativity about it at, at this stage. I think it, unless you have a compelling reason uh, in terms of uh, osteopenia or chronic steroid use or malnutrition, some other factor that's really going to hinder uh, the patient's bony healing, then uh, you know, they probably should be safe for revision cases or, um, you know, just to to avoid the various complications that can come with it. And, um, you know, there's not really strong evidence that, um, you know, tumor promotion is, is a major consideration. But, uh, you know, when you're talking about a patient with, with a very long lifespan ahead of them, you know, even if there's not actually a, a real association or they develop cancer at any point in the future, somebody's going to raise a red flag if they have BMP used, and it's just a, it's a headache that you might not want to deal with. And you know, but, but the bottom line is that most pediatric patients are going to heal their bone pretty readily, and, and it's just a, a little bit more than is necessary, and it does carry a, a host of possible complications. And I think when patients have a, a strong bone healing capacity, then one thing that might be uh, a a larger concern is the possibility of ectopic bone formation when you use BMP. If you get just more bone growth than than you need, it can end up causing uh, radiculopathy or uh, stenosis or other other concerns of that sort. So I I would hesitate to use BMP unless there are really strong uh, extenuating circumstances that that, uh, really justify its use.
2: Yeah, and that, that's exactly what we've seen in our practice as well. We were much more apt to use it uh, prior to um, the papers that came out in uh, around 2013 and 14, And now it's really just in our uh, revision cases or perhaps in our three-column sections that, uh, that that we may, may consider it. Now, there has been, you know, some literature that has come out on BMP usage uh, in pediatrics but it's still short-term. It's only you know three to five years of follow-up, and so I still think we need to uh, we need longer follow-up before we truly understand what some of the implications of BMP in these children can be. And until we know that, I think our usage uh, should be uh, cautious. Well, uh, any other questions uh, from Dr. Desani or Dr. Maguire? Um, no, thank you. This was a you know very very educational, enjoyable from our standpoint.
1: Well, great. Great. Well, thanks very much for, for inviting me. This has been fantastic. So, yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate your time and the questions. Great.
0: Thank you. thank you all. That concludes our CNS Journal Club podcast. Have a great night. Thank you.